Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, as always, if you're a guest of ours, we want you to know we're honored to have you with us today. There's a lot of places you could be this morning. And to be here with us worshiping God, we're honored that you chose to... Uh, you didn't choose us, you chose Jesus. But uh, we're honored to worship together this morning. I heard a story about two fellows who were hiking in the Alps. And after a few hours, they became hopelessly lost and started to panic just a little bit. And one fellow turns to the other and says, what are we going to do? How are we going to get back? And the other guy says, well, I guess I could consult the map that's in my backpack. His friend says, you got a map? Well, pull that thing out. Let's figure out how to get that back, you know, where we need to be. So he pulls the map out of his backpack and he looks at it and he, he turns it a little bit and he looks at the, some landmarks and he checks his compass and he looks at the angle of the sun and he said, okay, I think I've got it. See that big mountain over there in the distance? And his friend said, yeah. He said, well, according to my map, we're standing on top of it. <laughs> okay, there's something a little bit sobering about that really bad joke, isn't there? I mean, there's something that we can sort of all relate to when, when we check the map, when we check the standard, when we check what we, what we know to be right and accurate and true and realize we're not exactly where we're supposed to be. You know, the map says we are supposed to be there, but we're here. The standard says we're supposed to be doing that, but instead we're doing this. You know, as Christians, our map is God's Word. Our standard is the Bible. We stand on the standard. You know, we stand on God's Word. We want to pattern our lives after the life of Jesus. We want to pattern our church after the church that we read about in the first century. I don't think anyone here would argue with those goals. We want to be a New Testament church. You know, read the Bible. Read the book of Acts especially. It's a history book of the New Testament church. And it's interesting, if you really read the book of Acts with eyes wide open, I know so many of you are really familiar with that book, but if you read that book with eyes wide open, you might be surprised at the things that they paid really close attention to and the things that they didn't seem to talk too much about. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of a heads up about what Jesus and the early church paid close attention to. And what seemed to be a priority of theirs, and that's people. They were focused on people, on serving people, and on helping people find Jesus. That's what they taught. That's what they did. That was their priority. We just wrapped up a sermon series that I called Doing Life Together, and we've talked for like six weeks about this idea that we're in this thing together, and that we need to be looking after each other and loving each other. But I hope I didn't give the impression that this is some exclusive club with a secret handshake. No, yes, the team is in here, but the work is out there, right? I mean, our, our acts of service and our acts of focus need to be out there. Jesus and the early church, they were completely missional. And they were absolutely evangelistic. And I know those words make us a little bit uncomfortable sometimes, but call it what you want to call it. They were focused on people. They were focused on helping people, and they were focused on pointing people towards Jesus. And the Jesus they were pointing people toward was a Jesus who was focused on serving and saving. 
Jesus himself said, I didn't come to the earth to be served, I came to serve. And Jesus himself said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. We want to love Jesus and we want to be like Jesus. But can I just be real honest with you this morning? I want to be honest with you this morning. I think an awful lot of times for an awful lot of people, and too often including myself, the Jesus that I really want to pattern my life after is 12-year-old Jesus. You remember 12-year-old Jesus? Remember that little section in the book of Luke that gives us a glimpse into the, the childhood of Jesus? Remember at 12 years old, Jesus' mom and dad took him back to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, and when they were headed back home, somehow Jesus got separated, and Mary thought he's with Joseph, and Joseph thought he's with Mary, and they realized he's not with us, and they rushed back to Jerusalem. You remember where they found Jesus? He's in the temple, right? It's on the screen there, Luke chapter 2, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. They found 12-year-old Jesus basically in church, right? Sitting and listening, asking questions, having deep theological conversations, and everyone was amazed at the depth of this 12-year-old Jesus. Now they, were, they were talking about the law. Too many times, that's the Jesus we want to pattern our lives after. We want to do 12-year-old Jesus things, and really nothing else. I want to come to church, and I want to sit, and I want to listen. And I want to hear people ask questions, and I want to hear people answer questions. I want to have these deep theological conversations. I want to talk about the law, and then next week, I want to come back and do it all over again. Now, my goal this morning isn't to make you uncomfortable. I don't want you to be offensive. I know all the scriptures about the importance of studying God's Word. I get that. I just said we stand on scripture. I know that we're told to be prepared to give an answer to everyone you know, who questions us, hope that lies within us. I get that. I agree with that. I'm just saying we love 12-year-old Jesus. And we love to do 12-year-old Jesus things. I'm not sure we're quite as prepared or quite as motivated to do 30-year-old Jesus things. But Jesus didn't stay 12 years old, did he? 30-year-old Jesus is teaching and modeling service and evangelism. That's the Jesus I want to be like. Now, I just mentioned I, I don't want to be making anyone uncomfortable. Well, if I haven't made you uncomfortable yet, hang with me. I'm getting ready to. Okay, If I haven't stepped on your toes yet, get ready, because I'm going to go to an uncomfortable passage of Scripture. Uh, in and of itself, it's not uncomfortable. For us, I think it's a little bit uncomfortable. At least it probably should be. Uh, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to his protege, Timothy. His, what Paul calls his son in the faith. And for the most part, the letter is for pretty much everybody, but there's a few sections that are specific to different uh, segments of the congregation, the group of believers where Timothy is living and working. And I want to take a look at one of those sections that's pretty specific. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse 17. Paul says this to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world, 
Okay, the rest of the letter is pretty much for everyone. This is this part's restricted. This part's pretty specific. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them, that is, these rich people, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they, that is, the rich people, will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they, the rich people, may take hold of the life that's truly life. Paul tells the rich people, I want you to be rich in good deeds. I want you to be generous. I want you to be willing to share. Which sort of begs the question, okay, who is he talking to? Who are they? Who are the rich people? Who does this apply to? And I'm going to guess that you know where I'm headed here. You know, I look around this room and I don't think anyone in this room would consider themselves rich. I don't consider anyone in this room to be someone who, wow, that person, that family, they are just so rich. But you know where I'm going here, don't you? Now, I could give you a bunch of statistics and we could talk about a bunch of facts and, and things like that. Let me just say this. If you make $24,000 a year, you are in the 90th percent of the richest people on earth. If you have access to $80,000 a year, you are in the 1% of the richest people on the face of this earth right now. So let's just get out of denial. Let's be biblical about this thing. When Paul says, command those who are rich in this present age, he's talking to me. And he's talking to you. We are the rich people. I think we, intellectually at least, would agree with that. So don't be arrogant. Trust God. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous. Be willing to share. Let me take it a step further and share with you a story that is a story told by grown-up Jesus, by the way. And I've preached on this story before. I'll do it again because there's so much information here. But it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you all are familiar with the story. I've got uh, uh, verse 19 of Luke 16 starting there on the screen. Actually, if you back up to verse 14, we're told that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who loved money. And the Pharisees who loved money were sneering at Jesus. So Jesus' audience, when he tells this story of the rich man and Lazarus, it's rich people who are upset with him. So he's talking to a wealthy, hostile crowd. And here's the story that Jesus tells. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So far, there's two people in this story. One is very much like us. The other is really nothing like us. One uh, is dressed like we would dress. Nice clothes, clean, has some options when it comes to what he's going to wear. The other is not dressed like we would dress. One lives very much like we live. Nice things, got stuff, has resources. The other does not live like we live. One has access to, to medical uh, uh, health uh, uh, benefits and care like we do. The other does not. One eats pretty much like we eat. Plenty of food. Doesn't even think about food. 
In fact, ends up throwing some food away. Food falls off his table. The other would not think of throwing food away. The rich man and Lazarus. Now, before we go any further, I want someone to impress me with your Bible knowledge. This is a smart group of people. What other story, what other parable does Jesus tell where he names one of the characters in the story? Of all the parables that Jesus told, what other story does he name someone? Does he give them a name in the story? And I'll go ahead and tell you it's a trick question because the answer is there aren't any. All the stories, all the parables that Jesus tells, the characters are always anonymous except this story. He doesn't name anybody else in his parables. Not the prodigal son, not the dad, not the elder brother, not the good Samaritan, not the guy who was beaten up, not the two guys who passed by, not the keeper of the inn, not the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray, not the woman who lost the coin, not the shepherd who lost the sheep. Every other character in Jesus' stories are nameless with the exception of this one. Why? You know, it's interesting if you go to a party and there's someone there who's really, really wealthy and a little bit famous and sort of an influencer in the community and there's someone else there who is not any of those things, maybe not dressed very well, doesn't seem to fit in exactly, not great social skills. Whose name do you remember it being at the party? You remember the rich guy, right? And all the stories that Jesus ever told, the only character he attaches a name to is a homeless, penniless, diseased beggar. And Jesus calls him Lazarus. Which is really a little bit ironic. Because Lazarus is a Hebrew name, which means the one God helps. And in the story, it looks like this is not the guy that God helps. The rich man should be named Lazarus. Because it sure looks like God has helped him. It looks like this poor guy, this beggar, he seems to be the one God has forgotten. But Jesus gives him the name Lazarus, the one God helps. And every day the rich man would come out of his house and he'd walk past Lazarus. He saw him. He knew he was there. And I wonder what the rich man thought when he walked past Lazarus every single day. You know, maybe he said to himself, hey, I've worked hard for my money. And if I have more than that fellow, he hasn't applied himself like I have. So he needs to do what he has to do to do what I've done. I'm not giving my money away. And maybe I'm being too hard on the rich man. You know, maybe the rich man had a lot of people asking him for money. It happened, still does. And maybe he just got to the point where he said, you know, I, I just can't take the pain anymore. I, I just can't take the heartache of seeing somebody like that. It's just, it's just too depressing. Maybe he just became callous to the whole situation. I'm just not going to make eye contact. Uh, I'm not going to look. I don't want to be depressed. I don't know what the rich man was thinking, but I know what he wasn't thinking. He wasn't thinking... God, what are you doing in this world and how can I help? And he wasn't thinking, how can I be part of the solution to the problem? And I will guarantee he wasn't thinking, God, when you look at Lazarus, what do you see? He wasn't thinking any of those thoughts. 
And then what about Lazarus? Notice Jesus says, at his gate was laid a beggar. doesn't say that Lazarus went to his gate every day, walked to his gate, ran to his gate. At his gate was laid a beggar. Somebody had to take Lazarus and set him there where he thought maybe somebody with some resources would walk by. And every day Lazarus had to be thinking to himself, maybe today. Maybe today. Maybe today is the day that that guy with all these resources, with all this wealth, with, with extra stuff, maybe today's the day that his heart's going to be moved. Maybe today's the day he's going to look at me with compassion and help me in some way. And when they came at the end of the day and picked up Lazarus and took him away, I'm sure his thought was, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Well, let's finish the story. You know how it ends. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here, and you're in agony. There is so much that we could talk about in this story. And there's so much that we should talk about, and I hope that we come back pretty soon and do just that. In fact, the story's not quite over, but for my purposes today, I want to end it right here. I want to just stop right here in the story. And I want to make my one and only point this morning. I only have one point to draw from this parable that we could draw so many points from. And it's a point that intellectually we all know, but I think we need to be reminded of over and over again. And that is this. How we treat people in this life is going to matter in the next life. How we treat people in this life is going to matter in the next life. Yes, what we know is important. Absolutely. What we think is absolutely important. But make no mistake, what we do with what we know and what we think, how we treat people, it's going to matter throughout all of eternity. Remember Paul told Timothy, command those who are rich in this present age. We've already decided that's me. I better pay attention to what Paul has to say since he's talking right to me. And then in the story, Jesus said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. That's me too. I've got good things. I've got stuff. I've got a lot of good things. So the question i got to deal with is, what am I going to do with all the good things I've been given? Because what I do with the good things in this life going to matter in the next life. Notice in the story, Abraham didn't tell the, the rich man he'd earned anything. He didn't say, well, you deserve all these good things because you've been so smart and, and so talented and so capable. No, he said, you received your good things. It's all a gift. Well, who's the gift from? What's well, a gift from God since every good and perfect gift is from above? Let me tell you something that you already know about money. 
Money is going to try to convince me that I am somehow superior or more entitled to people who don't have as much of it as I do. And money is going to make me less dependent on God. And money is going to make me less desperate for God. And money is going to try to make me forget that I am a sinner saved by grace. I don't deserve any gift that I have. My health, my mind, my IQ, my education, my experience. It's all a gift from God. I didn't earn any of it. I just received it. So somehow the idea that I have what's coming to me and I deserve it and you got to work for what you have and if you're not working hard enough then uh, you don't get any of mine. Let's just call it what it is. Uh, that's sinful talk. That's sinful thinking. So much of what Jesus taught and so much of what Jesus focused on was people. And Jesus understood in the culture that He lived in so many people were missed. And so many people were marginalized. And so many people were ignored. And Jesus is really clear on this. He says, not in my kingdom. That is not going to happen in my kingdom. Not in my church. We're not going to miss the people that everybody else misses. And we're not going to ignore the people that everybody else ignores. You have no idea how much 30-year-old Jesus loves all the Lazaruses that are living in Tampa. Let me finish where we began. I'm going to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous, willing to share. In this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. We decided we're all rich people. Can a rich person go to heaven? Well, Paul says you can if we're rich in good deeds, if we're generous, if we're willing to share. Let me tell you one more story. Uh, it's a true story. Told by and about uh, John Clayton. Not the John Clayton on ESPN, but the, the John Clayton who's done so much work with Christian evidences. Uh, most of you are aware of him at least. Brilliant guy. Multiple degrees and doctorates in physics and chemistry and geology and earth science. And if you know John Clayton, you, you know his story. He was raised as an atheist. And as a scientist, he set out rather early in his uh, professional career to prove that God can't possibly exist. And in that process, through science, he came to the conclusion that God has to exist. There has to be a supreme being. But uh, again, he's, he's put out some excellent material in Christian evidences. But he tells a story about his mother. And I'm sure that many of you have heard this story because I've heard him tell it a few times myself. But he was raised in a very academic family. Both of his parents hold, held uh, multiple degrees. Both were teachers. Both were very staunch atheists. All of John Clayton's brothers were atheists. He claims that he was raised in a home that was anti-God in every way. But John Clayton became a Christian. 
And for decades, he tried to convince his family members of the love of Jesus with no avail. John's father passed away. His mother was a very strong-willed individual. Eventually, her health began to fail, and the family decided to place her in a very nice assisted living uh, facility. He said she sort of became the matriarch of that place. She still had that strong, dominable will, and they didn't plant a flower without his mom giving her opinion on where it should be and why. But her health kept declining, and John Clayton decided it was best to bring his mom home with him and his wife and, and care for her in his own home. And here's what he said. Though her body was failing, her mind was as sharp as ever. She still loved to read and study and engage in deep academic conversations. She was a hard woman to keep up with intellectually. As her health declined, she became incontinent. And one night I was changing my mother's diaper, and she said to me, You know, John, your brothers won't do this. I said, I know, Mom, that's because they're not Christians. This is what Christians do. You said, you know, John, my friends at the nursing home won't do this. And he said, I know, Mom, that's because they're not Christians. And this is what Christians do. And she said, John, I don't want to be an atheist anymore. I want to be a Christian too. And he said, I had spent decades sharing with my mother every scientific, geological, archaeological, mathematical, intellectual argument for the existence of God. We had talked and discussed and argued about every sense side of the argument of does God exist? I shared with her every scripture I could find on the existence of God, the reality of the truth of the gospel, of Jesus' sacrifice and our response to that sacrifice. But it wasn't until I was changing her diaper that the love of Jesus finally found its way into her heart. You know that old saying, no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. It's true, isn't it? Jesus came for people like me and you. He came for rich people. Jesus died for rich people. But he also died for moms in diapers. And he died for people who don't have quite as much. And people who can't quite hold a job. And people who don't have food to eat every day. And people who don't seem to fit into society. And the people that others might miss. And the people that sometimes need a little bit of help. In fact, Jesus gave them a name. Lazarus. Not the one God forgot, but the one God helps. Listen, people are always looking for somebody who cares. Everyone is looking for someone who cares. God is looking for someone who cares, someone who will help, someone who will serve, someone who will do the things that He's called us to do. We want to tell the story of Jesus. I am really excited about the next couple of weeks leading into the next year where we're going to be making this major 
focus on telling the story of Jesus. You're going to be hearing so much more about that. I want to tell the story of Jesus, but I don't want to just tell the story. I want to be a part of the story. And God has invited me to and allows me to be a part of the Jesus story. So that as I live my life and as I talk to people and as I serve and as I try to do the things that God has called me to do, they don't see me, they see Jesus. They see the love of Jesus. And the love of Jesus finally works its way into people's hearts through our service. I want to be just like Jesus. But I don't want to be just like the 12-year-old Jesus. I don't want to leave it there. I don't want to just come to church every week and sit and listen and ask questions and then, and then go home and come back a week later. I want to be like grown-up Jesus. I want to see people that, that need the love of Jesus, to reach out to people. That's the Jesus story that I want to be a part of. And I know you do too. We've got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement this morning. Maybe today the love of Jesus is finding its way into your heart. Maybe you need to respond to that love. Or maybe you just need the prayers of people who love you. You're in a room with people who love you, even if you don't realize it. If we can pray with you, if we can pray for you, if we can help you in any way as a church family, there'll be some people here at the front of the auditorium. Why don't you come and meet us there? Let's stand and sing.